you have a Bible or device, I'd invite you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're new with us, welcome. We are working our way through this 12-chapter sermon of the teacher, the preacher. We believe that it's a Solomon, and uh, later in life, having walked away from God, coming back to God, instructing students and instructing you and me about life. And today he's going to talk to us about living life with the reality that we're going to face uncertain tomorrows, that life is unpredictable. He's talking about the life of uncertainties, that there's no guarantee for you what's going to happen tomorrow. In fact, it's guaranteed uncertainties. You can expect that. Now, uh, as we begin, I want to just mention we don't like living uh, with uncertainty for the most part. It's hard. Um, case in point, Exhibit A was the last few years with the pandemic. How many of you just love making plans only to have a notification or some announcement? Oh, it's canceled. And then you regroup, you make another plan. Oh, that too, it's canceled. Oh, and they say, finally, no, it's canceled. How many of you just enjoyed that? That was just awesome, right? No, it frustrates us. We want the ability to plan and control our future. But it's not just the pandemic. It's also just life. It's maybe you're here today and you're uncertain about your health. You're not sure about what's coming ahead with your health. Maybe you're uncertain about your job and the economy. What's going to happen there? Maybe you're unsure about uh, the government and are there laws going to be passed and can we do this or can we do that? Maybe it's a relationship. You're unsure about a relationship. Uncertainty is a hard Thing. Well, Solomon today, as he instructs us, he's going to talk to us about this reality that there are no guarantees when it comes to life. That not only under the sun, from our secular worldview, our this is all there is, this is what your kids are being you know, indoctrinated with, this is all there is, all you see, one and only life. Um, with that life, Solomon says, let's be honest, there's no ultimate meaning found there. He also says, let's be honest, there's no ultimate happiness found there. And then let's be honest, there's no perfect justice found there. And today he's going to say, let's be honest, there's no guaranteed outcomes when it comes to this life. And so today, I'm not sure how you deal with uh, uncertainties and things you thought would happen and didn't happen and things that do happen and you wish didn't happen. Maybe you're here today and you're just an anxious person. Maybe you're a fearful person. Maybe you're bitter, bitter and cynical, like you just, like, things haven't worked out and, and you find yourself in that place. You're in a place maybe 10 years ago you thought, how did I ever end up here? And so today we're talking about that, how we can respond to the uncertainties of life. So if you have a Bible, we're going to work through chapters 8 and 9 uh, in Ecclesiastes. And the first thing Solomon's going to instruct us is, is with this point, hey, if you're a, a righteous person, you're a good person, life may not go well with you. It doesn't always work out that way. So Ecclesiastes 8, beginning in verse 14. There's something else meaningless that occurs on earth or under the sun or under the heavens. This is all there is. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. So he's looking at the righteous. Now, let's pause for a moment. When you read your Bible, uh, the word righteous or righteousness, there's two kinds. First is positional 
righteousness. When you, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, that I need Jesus to save me, he's my hope, he's my joy, he's my everything. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, uh, an exchange took place. You gave Jesus your sin, every single last little thing that you've done wrong, you gave it to him, he bore it on the cross, and he gave you his righteousness. Paul says, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You're wearing a robe so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see all your faults and failures and your sins. He sees you as a right person because of his son, Jesus. You are holy and blameless. That's positional righteousness. So God, if you're saved, man, that's why you sing. I can't believe it. I'm holy and blameless. But there's also practical righteousness. And practical righteousness is... being right with God, living in a way that's right with God, and right with your neighbor. And spiritual growth is the gap between positional righteousness and practical righteousness becoming smaller and smaller, so that you are right with God, you are right with others, you're doing the right things. Now, we think a righteous person, according, in a sense, to Proverbs, should expect good outcomes, because that's what Proverbs tells us. Proverbs 11.8, the righteous person is rescued from trouble and it falls on the wicked instead. Proverbs 12.21, no harm overtakes the righteous, but the wicked have their fill of trouble. Proverbs 13.21, trouble pursues the sinner, but the righteous are rewarded with good things. We like those verses about righteousness in Proverbs. Put that on your coffee mug. Wear that on your t-shirt. That's awesome. Righteous are rewarded. And that's what Proverbs talking about. Now, Proverbs are not promises, but they're generalizations. All things being equal, if you do this, you can expect this. If you're a right person, you can expect a positive outcome. If you're not a contentious person, you can expect good relationships. If you're a hard worker, you can expect the fruit of your labor. Uh, If you obey the law, you can expect justice. That's Proverbs. But Ecclesiastes is dealing with all the exceptions. Ah, that's not always the case. You can be a good person and have a bad outcome. You can train up your child in the way that he or she should go, and when they're later, for the most part, all things being equal, they'll continue in those ways. But that's not always the case. There's exceptions. And so Proverbs generalizations here in Ecclesiastes He's looking under the sun at all of these exceptions. He's like, what? The righteous are are not getting what they deserve. They're getting what the wicked deserve, and the wicked are getting what the righteous deserves. Now, before we move on, Psalms is the place where you process the exceptions. If you are trying to live a good life, and something happens to you unexpectedly that's not good, that you don't like, you should turn to the book of uh, Psalms, because in Psalms, You too can say, me too. I feel like that. And you can begin to pray those psalms back to God. So for example, for me, I've mentioned this before, but Psalm 73, uh, when I was younger, and still probably till today, but Psalm 73 when I was younger was my favorite uh, psalm. And here's why. When I was younger, back in my 20s, I was a good person. I still like to think I am today, but but I was a, a, a right person. I was trying to live right with God, right with others, I was a hockey player, didn't go and get drunk, didn't do all this. I was leading Bible studies with hockey players and, and at, at school and then later, uh, well, yeah, university and then later in life and doing all the right things. And, well, being a right person, uh, I made a couple deals with God. 
I came to understand later he didn't actually sign off on them. But it made two deals with God. And neither of those deals came to pass. And I was like, this is unfair. God, how come I'm doing this and here's what happened. And I used this, I was a hockey player at the time. God, you've given me the shaft. And for a long time, I was like, God, you were giving me the shaft. And I resonated with the psalmist in Psalm 73, Asaph, who said, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So God's, I think God is, he really is good to, to a, a right person, a good person. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. Uh, I wasn't so sure. I was struggling with all my doubts. I, is God good? Is he like, is he knows, does he know what's going on in my life? And then the psalmist goes on to say, you know, when I looked at the wicked people that had no time for God, that were actually doing bad things, that they um, actually mocked God, and the psalmist is saying, look at all of them, and it seems to be life is easy for them. But look at me. I've kept my heart in pure and vain. What good is all this I've been doing? It's, it's of no value. And then verse 17 is the hinge verse in that psalm where he says, I was just so full of angst and and I was so upset until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Until I got the big picture that, oh, wicked people, it matters how you live. They're not going to get away with it. God's going to judge them. There's going to be perfect justice. And then the psalm says, but as for me, God's got me by the hand. He holds me. Wonderful psalm. Life is unfair to you. You turn to the psalms and you process all of those exceptions. So here Solomon is saying, I'm talking to you about exceptions. If you're a good person, it may not always go well with you. Secondly, if you have abilities and you develop your abilities and gifts and and you're just really intent on on doing that for God, uh, it may not go well with you either. Look what he says in chapter 9, verse 11. He writes, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the fastest or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. The fastest usually win the race, but that's not always the case. And all of you slow people said, amen, right? That's why we have Cinderella stories and underdogs and David and Goliath and go Team Canada at FIFA soccer, right? We don't know. We could win. The strong person usually wins the battle, but not always. The, the wise person, the brilliant person, the educated person usually has the best job and makes the most money and the most favor, but that's not always the case. Exceptions. Young people I remember when I was um, graduated from university and looking for a, a job, and, um, and so I read What Colors My Parachute, that book. We were all told to read that book. Do you guys still read that book today, anybody? Okay, What Colors My Parachute, right? And, and you need to know who you are and all that stuff. And, and then, uh, and then uh, you know, had to dress right for your interview. So you wore a certain color. Don't wear that color because that says this, and wear this color. And don't wear jewelry because too much jewelry can distract the person. They're like, what's up with all that? So got that down, and then, oh, make sure you research the company so that you know the value you can bring to it. You can speak that. And, and when all, of, all, all through those things, and maybe you too would go through those things. That's a good thing. But here's the reality. You may be the best candidate for the job. You may be most educated, and it should go to you. And praise the Lord, sometimes it does, but that's not always the case. There's exceptions. 
Why is that? Look what he says at the bottom of verse 11. But time and chance happen to them all. Again, he's looking under the sun without God, and he's saying, just kind of like good luck, bad luck. You were in the right place at the wrong time, or you weren't in the right place at the, wrong, uh, the right time. Just bad luck. Thirdly, he talks about wisdom. He focuses on wisdom. He says, even with wisdom, there's no guarantee of a positive outcome. You can be a wise person. It may not pay off. And he, tells, or he shares a story with us, uh, beginning in verse 13, chapter 9, verse 13. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man, a man, poor but wise, and he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are no longer heeded. So on one hand, yeah, wisdom was great. It helped save this little city. But for this man, was there a positive outcome? Did they build a statue in the center of town? There's Mr. Martin. Oh, we're going to tell Mr. Mr. Bauman, Mr. Weaver, whoever you want there. There's Mr. or Mrs. (laughs) There it is. You know, and we're going to tell our grandkids. We still, you know, we've got our, our city still. There's no statue. There's no local school assembly. No, kids, let's give it up for Mr. Martin. There's none of that. In fact, his words are despised. And if you go back earlier to Solomon's sermon, he's going to die and be forgotten. Ah, it's all hevel. It's all meaningless. Life doesn't make sense. Right? So he's dealing with all of these exceptions. So why be good? Why be wise? You're just going to die. And that's what he talks about next. I, I, I know you've had a lot of cheerful news so far, but there's more cheerful news. He's going to talk to us about death, one of the themes in this book, that your death is inevitable. You're going to die. So you get to go through life with things not turning out exactly how you planned, and then at the end you just die. Do you kind of feel a little hopeless and helpless and depressed? Good. That's how Solomon wants you to feel. Life without God, under the sun, uh, you can dress it all up. But at the end of the day, it's hell. No good. So then he then shares uh, some things. And this is now how, or uh, before he shares uh, how we deal with these uncertainties, he's going to talk to us about this common destiny, this death that awaits us. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 9. He writes, so I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. Okay, we'll come back to that. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. Uncertainties of life. You don't know if you're going to have a lot of great experiences and there's a lot of love or you're going to have bad experiences and there's a lot of hate. Who knows? And then he goes on, verse 2. All share a common destiny. He's talking about death. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not, as it is with the good, so with the sinful, as it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. So everybody has a common destiny. Death is no respecter of per- per- persons. You can be good, you can be bad, you can be religious, irreligious, you can be tall, short, you can be this skin color, this skin color, you're all going to die. Then he goes on in verse 3. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. 
The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. And then a little later down in verse 12, in his sermon, he he shares with us, yeah, all the uncertainty of life and then death. Let me talk to you about that some more. Verse 12, moreover, no one knows when their hour will come, as fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Just like a fish, there's little Nemo swimming in the water. There's little Nemo nibbling. Bam! Next thing you know, Nemo's in a cooler on somebody's boat, right? (laughs) Or there's a little bird flying. Oh, touches down over there, touches down over there. Boom! Next thing you know, snare. That's just life. We don't know. We're all uncertain about what happens tomorrow, and at the end of it all, we all die. He's forcing us to think about death and this life. And notice the word destiny. Seven times in Scripture, the word destiny is used. Three times are right here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 9, verse 2, all share a common destiny. Verse 3, the same destiny overtakes all. And then earlier in his sermon, Ecclesiastes 7, 2, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Your destiny is death. And notice there he says, it's a good thing. It's a better thing for you to go to a house of mourning, that's like a funeral, or even to church on a Sunday when we're talking about death and it kind of seems a bit morbid. That's better than going to a birthday party. And going to a wedding, are those things good? Yes. Should we celebrate? Yes. But there's an advantage of going to a house of mourning. What is it? The living can take to heart the fact that they're going to die. When I'm at a funeral, that death speaks to me of my inevitable death. And I can face death, face it right head on. Because in our culture, we're very good at not thinking about death. Just keep busy And then next thing you know, you're just not on this earth that keeps spinning. Just keep busy. But no, Solomon is saying, no, you got, think about your death. Now, notice here the word destiny too is not used the way that it is in our culture. Uh, When I was growing up years ago, uh, destiny was quite a big word. Have you guys heard of destiny from time to time in in our world under the sun, right? What's, What's destiny? How's it presented? It's all glamorized and dressed up. You know, your destiny is like your dream. It's your, you've arrived at your dream, right? You can climb any mountain. You can reach your goals. You can achieve anything you set your mind to it. Now, there's some truth in that. We want to aspire and do our best. But, but it's just like you've got to get to this place in your life. And then so the gold medalist, I just fulfilled my destiny. It was just destiny, you know, all these dreams, right? Solomon is not talking about that destiny. He's talking about another destiny, that we're all going to die. It's depressing. Oh, Tony Robbins, do you remember him, the motivational guru? Okay, he's going to sell more books and coffee mugs than Solomon, right? Anybody else Tony Robbins other than myself, Right? Read the books, right? And then you can go to these events, and do you remember the videos? And, and there's these people, you know, there's this lady, and she's like 65. Not that that's old, but she's 65. And she's walking across hot coals. Can you believe it? Wow, she can achieve anything in her life. 
That's unbelievable. And Solomon is saying, okay, you got that destiny, but let me tell you, I've reached my goals. I became rich to the point where I had more money than I knew what to do with. I had fame. I had more followers than any of you. I was wise. I gave my, I just studied everything. And let me tell you, none of that brought ultimate meaning and happiness in my life. We can climb the ladder, but we're only going to, without God, but we're going to realize the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. Hopefully you get, you understand that sooner rather than later. You don't spend your whole life chasing carrots like, oh, if I get that. Solomon says, you can get your destiny, but let me remind you, there's another destiny, your ultimate destiny, and it's death. And that's why when you read this sermon or listen to it over and over, he's like, what's the point of it all? What's the gain? What do we gain by being smart? What do we gain by, you know, building things and achieving things? At the end, we all die. He wants us to feel hopeless. Well, now then, let's talk for a few moments on how we can respond to the reality of uncertainties in life and death. Back to verse 1 of chapter 9, he said, So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. And what's that phrase? God's hands. The whole sermon, for the most part, depressing. And at the end, he's going to lift the, the curtain and say, Hey, guess what? Good news. Life is more than just the here and now. It's about God. It's about fearing Him, worshiping, living for Him, serving Him. He's what life is about. It's not about your little, small, pathetic, little, puny life. In a sense, that's what it is. That's mine too. It's about God. That's good news. And along the way, once in a while, he'll just open the curtain a little bit. Now, he doesn't get everything quite right with, like he's trying to process everything. But here, he opens the curtain for us to see that God's involved under the sun. Notice God's hand. It's speaking of his sovereignty. In the midst of all your uncertainties, God's still in control. You may not be, but he is. God's in control. And you will find from Genesis to Revelation, God revealing to you and to me, I'm in control, and oftentimes it'll, he'll use the image of a hand. I've got you in my hand. One particular passage in Scripture that many have memorized uh, is Isaiah 41.10, where he talks about that very thing. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. When something doesn't go the way you want, when you're filled with a pain you can't express, when life throws you a curveball and you want to give up, instead of doing this or this or this, trust me. Really, God's saying to you today, will you trust me? God's saying, I've got you in my hand. How do you respond to your coming death? How do you respond to all the ups and downs of life? You trust a God who is sovereign. The God who holds the future is the same God who holds you. Yes, there's uncertainties, but you can rest in God's sovereignty. And when you do that, when you understand there's more to life, that death isn't your final destiny, there's a God who's conquered death, and your ultimate destiny is with you, with him, it changes how you live. The way you think about death what you believe about death has absolutely everything to do 
with how you live your life. It really does. Stop, stop and think about that today. How you view life is affecting how you're living in the present. So let's look. In our world, in our culture, we see a lot of people without God, they believe that this is just the here and now. This is all there is. And so when I believe this is all there is, I've got to chase things because I want some happiness in my life. I've got to get things. I've got to do things. I've got to pack stuff in because this is all there is before I die. I have no time for the religion thing. Why would I ever think about a God? That's archaic. Like, why would I ever go to church? I don't have time to go to church. This is it before I die. I want to do some fun things before I die. That's how I live my life. If I, however, believe that death isn't the final destiny, that there's an ultimate destiny, and that's eternal life with God, it's going to change how I, I live. If I believe that in human history 2,000 years ago, someone called Jesus of Nazareth, we know this is fact, lived in the Middle East, died on a Roman cross, we know that is fact, and we believe was raised the third day, and he conquered death, and every single word he says is true, and he promises eternal life, that's going to change how I live my life. I'm not living for myself. I'm living for him. I want to love him because I'm going to stand before him one day. He's going to show me his nail-pierced hands, how much he loved me. And I don't want to be there and say, huh, sir, I live my life for me because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, if I do that, everything in my life is going up in smoke. Yeah, I'll go to heaven. But if I build with wood, hay, or straw, it's all going up in smoke. But if I follow and love Jesus and I build with gold and silver and costly stones... Somehow I'm going to be rewarded even beyond just seeing Jesus. It affects how I live my life. And please be reminded, if you're not yet a Christian, apart from God, this life is as good as it gets. Go like a party and just like doing this, traveling here, going here, all your experience, that's as good as it gets. But for a follower of Jesus, a Christian... This is as worst as it gets. Paul, who saw the risen Christ, realized that whatever happened in this life and death, it wasn't the end. He would be de decapitated, we believe by tradition, uh, by Nero, the emperor at the time, that he believed that this wasn't the end, but he'd seen the risen Christ, that Jesus, everything he said was true, and he was going to be with Jesus. So that's why he could say, for me to live is Christ, my life is all about Jesus, for me to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. It's nothing but good for all eternity. That's why he could say our light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Paul says, here's all the bad things in my life, and here's the good that awaits me. Oh, the good awaits me. And when you look at the bad things in his life, you're like, really? Is heaven that good? I mean, Paul, let's face it, you are arrested for being a Christian. There's Christians being arrested today around our world. You are arrested for being a Christian. You were imprisoned because you followed Jesus. You received the 40 lashes minus one. In Jewish law, according to the book of Deuteronomy, um, a punishment was 40 lashes with a whip, but to make sure that they, the, the guy whipping didn't miscount, there was always 39 lashes. Paul says, five times I received the 39 lashes. I don't know about you, but having my back split open a bit uh, with a whip, 
that's kind of a heavy thing. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. I don't know if you've ever seen a, a, uh, an image or portrayal of someone being stoned. It's horrific. I was stoned, left for dead. Oh, and then also I was shipwrecked three, three times, left in the open sea. I was in danger from this. And he says, all of that, nothing compared to what awaits me in Christ. That's why there's Christians around the world who are giving up their lives. They're in prison because they're no, they know with Jesus. Death is not the end. It's their final destiny. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The moment you breathe your last as a follower of Jesus, your spirit, your soul goes to be with Jesus. And then when he comes back, your body and your soul will be reunited and you will live with him forever. And uh, I'm aware of my death. I'm not sure, you know, like uh, um, when that will be, right? Just like you don't know, but they'll probably put me in a casket and people will walk by and say, oh, he looks pretty good. Yeah, that looks like Dan. And there'll be others, maybe, no, doesn't look like him. Not sure. There's my body, but my spirit, my soul is with the Lord. Death is not the end. My ultimate destiny is life forever with Jesus. If you're not a Christian, or if, sorry, if you are a, a young Christian, you've got to get these truths of the risen Savior. You've got to get them into you. You've got to get your roots down into his word. That's why Jeremiah 29, 11, many Christians hold on to that verse as they go through life. God says to you, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to, uh, not to, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, if you're a new Christian, a great passage to memorize. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding because often the sight of heaven, you won't understand it. You'll just drive yourself crazy. You'll make yourself miserable. Instead, in all your ways, acknowledge him. Lord, I'm going to keep following you, even though it doesn't make sense to me and this hasn't turned out. I'm going to keep following you. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. He'll make a way for you. He's bringing you home. So you're, you're, you're getting God's truth into you as a young Christian. And then also getting God's, um, some songs to do with God's word into you. Uh, it is well with my soul, a beloved hymn. Have you ever been through something and you're just singing, it is well with my soul? Some of those hymns? Or maybe it's a new modern song and you're just resonating with and you're just, you're putting your roots down. One of the songs that uh, really spoke to me years ago uh, was by the uh, Bill Gaither Trio. Anybody? Come on now. Right? Bill Gaither Trio. Right? Uh, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. He holds me. Life is worth the living just because he lives. So as you go through these ups and downs with death at the end, God's got you in his right hand. Jesus says it this way. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, go to ruin. No one will snatch them out of my hand. This morning, I'm not sure what you're going through, but it could be really bad. But in your heart, there's still a joy. Why? Because one, you're known, seen, and loved by Jesus. He died on a cross for you. He rose again for you. He's coming back for you. You have eternal life. Are you kidding me? You have eternal life. That's your destiny. And until that day when you see him, nobody's snatching you out of his hand. Trusting the one who is sovereign. In our unpredictable lives, there's a predictable Savior 
who does not change like shifting shadows, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and who is the constant, who wants to be the constant in your life. Is Jesus your rock? Is he your anchor? Is he your, your hope? Is he your foundation? That's how you go through life. Solomon, I want to just close with this too. Solomon, in addition to trusting this God who's got us, his sovereignty, he also says along the way in this messed up world, learn to find joy in God's gifts to you. It's a theme when you go through his sermon. Uh, In chapter 8 and chapter 9, he both revisits that theme. Look what he says in Ecclesiastes 8, verse 15. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. So enjoyment, gladness, joy. And then again in in chapter 9, beginning in verse 7, go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love. So what he's saying there, God's little gifts, food and drink, getting dressed up, that's the festive, they would wear white and the oil, moisture, you know, um, just getting dressed up and go and have fun. If you're married, you've got a wife, go and enjoy uh, time with your wife, have some fun. If you're single, get a friend or get some friends and go and have a good time. He's saying to us in the midst of our heartaches and our frustrations and our responsibilities, God still wants you to enjoy things along the way, his good gifts. So make sure today you go home and if you like coffee, go enjoy your coffee. Go enjoy a walk with a friend. Go enjoy watching whatever it is, you know, on TV that you really like. Enjoy those good gifts from God. And he he ends, uh, Solomon says, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days, for this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under under the sun. So he's saying in this life that doesn't make sense, find some joy.